welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Anne, Chelsea's mom. And today we have our very first guest on the podcast. Um, I actually met him back in 2012. I think we talked about Brave Buddies. What? And you actually went to the volunteer. Yeah, we both volunteered as people who have overcome selective mutism, and we worked with kids who are struggling with it still. Mm-hmm. So our guest is Jonathan Kohlmeyer. He was diagnosed with selective mutism when he was five years old, same as me, and social anxiety. He wrote a memoir, which is kind of why we're doing this episode. It's called Learning to Play the Game, My Journey Through Silence. And he wrote that when he was 19. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I started when I was in high school. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so his book is just like an honest look inside of what it's like to have selective mutism. So I found we share like a lot of experiences, mm-hmm. like we yeah. had a lot of the same thoughts and feelings. So John, we like to welcome you. Yeah, thank you. welcome. <laughs> thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Is there anything you want to add about yourself or tell us a little bit? Uh, other than I'm, I'm currently 23. Um, I, after the book came out. I think uh, I was in college. Uh, I graduated college in May 2018. And uh, here we are. Yeah. What was your degree in? My degree was uh, in business and finance and mix of technology. Awesome. Good for you. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're still involved in like volunteering with Selective Mutism camps? I I still do some of the camps. I Mm -hmm. just finished few days ago my I don't know if it was fifth or sixth camp um this one was at Kurt Psychology for doing a Mighty Mouth also for younger kids ages four to nine wow nice. and also I've been volunteering with uh, NAMI in my local community to do presentations at schools so I've done a few of those already so far so I'm still trying to uh contribute any way I can and getting the word out and what does NAMI stand for? NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's, okay. it's a national organization, but almost in each county or in many counties, they have a local chapter mm-hmm. where they run classes or do different, different types of things, have seminars. Do you have trouble with that at all, like presenting? Uh, ironically, no. I actually really enjoy it. It seems uh, like you do it a lot, so you probably got over it. Yeah. When I first started doing them, even when I first started doing the camps, it was very difficult. But just like with anything with anxiety, social anxiety, selective mutism, after you do one or two or three and then you practice it, it comes second nature. And when I know the day's coming, I get really excited about it. That's cool. That's awesome. That's cool. What do you, um, I'm just curious about when you do the camps and you see the little kids because you're doing the younger groups. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I'm sure you see yourself in them. Definitely. Is it, Chelsea and I were wondering, do you feel, you know, are you kind of like the empathetic um, camp counselor yeah. or are you the tough one who kind of tries to push them? Like, how do you uh, it? I guess I'm a mix of both. I've actually mostly, this was my first camp for the little kids that I've done since when we did Brave Buddies in oh. 2012 together. So I've mostly done camps for the older kids. That one's called We Speak. Mm-hmm. And it's for ages... I think it's 11 or 12 until like 15, 16, 17. Now, is that through Kurt's psychology also? It was, but now it's out of a different practice run by Dr. Shelley Avney. 
Okay. She has her own practice now, also in New York. Okay. Sorry, continue. <laughs> and so, yeah, when, so I didn't have, I was no longer diagnosed with selective mutism when I was a teenager, but seeing the little kids at five, kind of like me during the headlights, when you ask them a question, it's definitely kind of strange to see. Um, but it's definitely easier now than it was when I first started doing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm probably a mix of pushing and very empathetic, yeah. but uh, it's hard to do for anybody. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess, do you have any, I'm just curious, like, you know, we have been there, or at least Chelsea's been there. Do you, because I know a lot of our listeners, it's hard for them to imagine that their children after one yes. week could actually be speaking. So what do you, what do you kind of see there? It's, you definitely get a different response out of every kid. Um, some kids make tremendous amount of progress and that may, they may or may not need continued treatment, but I think that's kind of like a rare case where like they're almost turned around by this. I think for most of the kids, they make really, really good progress, Mm -hmm. but they still need to have a lot of, they still need to put a lot of work into it. And I think the great, one of the greatest things about the camp is that there's a big parent training piece where parents go and they learn so much about anxiety, about selective mutism, that they can store up all these tools that their kids and they've learned throughout camp. And once they go home, they can continue either by themselves or with a local therapist who may or may not be an expert. Mm -hmm. So you definitely get a range of outcomes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know exactly what the stats are, but after being with a few, some kids make tremendous progress. Most kids make some progress. Okay. So you mentioned Stephen Kurtz, Dr. Yes. Stephen Kurtz. So I know the answer, but if you want to tell our <laughs> listeners how you know him and what your relationship is with him. So when I was five, we had seen, I think, three doctors before we ended up meeting Dr. Kurtz. Um, and none of them, I don't think any of them knew what selective mutism, at least they never diagnosed me with it. I was diagnosed with autism or oppositional behaviors or a bunch of other things Mm -hmm. told my parents I would never get better I was going to be that way for the rest of my life and they needed to accept that but my mom and my dad knew that the kid that these doctors saw at the office was not the same kid that they saw at home so we went and did a an evaluation at NYU which we were fortunate enough to not live too far away it's about an hour drive and just so happened that I guess during the intake, he was listening to when they do the presentation of all the cases at the case conference. And he, I guess, heard that I stood underneath the light switch for seven months and didn't speak to anybody in kindergarten. And he was like, I need to meet this kid. So ended up being assigned, I guess. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but being assigned to him. And we first met in March of my kindergarten year when I was five and started treatment with him. I was kind of first real selective mutism patient at the time. Um, And now he's kind of one of the biggest experts in selective mutism. He developed PCITSM, which I know one of your other episodes is about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess I was treated with like the early development of that before it was officially named. You were the guinea pig. I know. For all of us. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah, we're excited. We're actually having him on right after you. 
Yeah, he's agreed to come yeah. on, so that's exciting. Yeah. That's very cool. Yes, yeah. and I'm sure when he tells you how he got started in SM, he will probably talk about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I know, um, I just, in reading your book, I guess what struck me, at least for the first half, was all the similarities that I saw with Chelsea. Um, and it's just, you know, it's kind of funny. You always think your story is like, oh, my God, she didn't do this, she didn't do that. But there's always someone out here, out there who yeah. experiences, I don't say worse than yours, but... I don't know about you, because I felt like I was the only person in the world who had this problem. And yes. it's so yeah. crazy. Like, we pretty much were having the same thoughts at the same time. And we yeah. didn't know there were... Yeah. It existed. Yeah. So there were a lot of similarities. Um, like, Chelsea's hiding place was the bathroom. Um, I know you yeah. went to the nurse a lot. Chelsea yes. actually didn't like the nurse. I was so afraid was always, of the nurse. <laughs> that was always kind of a, a bump in the road in, our, in her story. Yes. Um, I like the nurse... Up- I liked the nurse a lot until my parents told the nurse not to let me stay there. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, Chelsea, you know, also being viewed as oppositional, which mm-hmm. I think a lot yeah. of little SM kids that happens to them, definitely they kind of put, you know, get treated in that way, not with compassion, but sort of being reprimanded. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of similarities. That, but when I read your book, I was like, well, I felt thankful that she at least sat down in her chair in kindergarten. I know. Yeah. I could get in the room. That's crazy. Like, were you, were you, what was going through your mind when you were like under the light switch? Like, were you bored standing there all day? I, I honestly don't remember being like disturbed by it. I remember I would go into the classroom and I would stand underneath the light switch and I would listen to all the lessons that the teacher was doing, but I just wouldn't walk past the first step. I wouldn't sit down. The teacher came to talk to me. I wouldn't really talk to her. I think I would shake my head or nod, mm-hmm. um, but other than that, I wouldn't really do anything in school. I wouldn't eat, wouldn't drink, wouldn't use the bathroom. Yeah. But I never, I don't think I ever, like, at least knew that I met somebody else with selective mutism until I went to Brave Buddies in 2012. Yeah, me too. And yeah. saw other little kids. Yeah. I'm sure there were other people that I came across in my life with it, but I never knew about it. Never, never came up, never met them never looked at somebody and said that kind of looks like selective mutism mm-hmm. i still don't think i've that's happened to me today even though the stat is like i think official stat is like one in 140 yeah. kids which really isn't that uncommon that's mm-hmm. a I few kids I, per school i think i have come across it a few times there was a little girl when i worked at boys and girls club for a summer and she just gravitated towards me and she did not speak to anyone other than me yeah yeah it's interesting yeah, there's been a couple of kids. I know Chelsea's kindergarten teacher. Chelsea was the first one she had. But since Chelsea, I think she's had two other yeah, um, she, little mm-hmm. kids. She, um, yeah. So, I mean, teachers must see kids cycle through there. So, I still yeah. think it's not recognized, though. I still no. think a lot of people just don't know about it, and it's just not recognized. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so you, what at what grade, I forget now, did you actually start speaking at school? So once I started with Dr. Kurtz in March, I started speak at least speaking in the building pretty quickly. Um, it was uh, probably after a couple months that I started speaking in the building, at least if it was just to him or just to my mom. Mm. Um, when I was like verbal with other kids in school, it was probably like the beginning of first grade. Maybe when I was like pretty much over my SM, separate from like giving presentations or anything, it was probably like second grade. Okay. That's, but still, I would have. Quick. Yeah. 
still yeah. still had trouble with like participating in front of class or raising my hand. But if one kid came up to talk to me, I think I would be able to speak with them at that point. Yeah. Okay. But all those other he, like, how did he work with you in school? Like, did he it do was fade ins. It was all fade ins, all exposure therapy. So first off, it would just be me and my mom in my classroom before school even started. Mm-hmm. Um, then just me, my mom and him, then just us with the teacher, like in the doorway or sitting at her desk working, then progressively closer and closer. It's, it's all that kind of repeated exposure practice, very small baby steps until, um, basically until I was able to be seated at my desk and do all that. I think th- this part is in the book, but the only, the first time I like actually went in into my classroom, I think I think Dr. Kurtz actually picked me up and put me on the carpet. When I read that in the book, I have to I had such anxiety for you, for your mother. I, I thought yes. for your mother because I just my heart was, you know, how do you oh, yes. it's so hard on the parent, not the yes. kid, but the parent too. I think I would yes. be so mad at him. I keep I, I kept I saying that when I was reading your book. I'm like, I would be so I couldn't mad believe at he did that, that he actually picked scooped you up and I'm like, I I don't know. Maybe so uncomfortable. <laughs> we'll have to I, talk to him about it. <laughs> but it you worked. Can ask him about it. Yes, it did work. Um I didn't really have trouble with it after that. It was like ripping off a band-aid kind of yeah. because I stood by the light switch for eight months, never walking into the classroom and it really wasn't happening, so he picked me up and put me there. Yeah. And then it all started from there. And then I was able to progress even further. That's mm-hmm. awesome. And um, I did I remember reading the book. I thought this was kind of funny, but I think kids, uh, parents kind of resort, we'll do anything. Yeah. That your dad actually, I don't want to say bribed, but he offered to pay you to go to school. And I was yes. actually impressed with the 20 bucks. I know. <laughs> but it didn't work, right? It did. It did work for a while, but then it slowly <laughs> went away. Uh, rewards were very helpful for me. Yeah. When I was going through my SM treatment, I know people have mixed feelings about it, but in my case and in PCIT SM, there is a lot of rewards, whether it's stickers or mm-hmm. something else. I would get brave bucks, we call them. They were little pieces of paper with Batman on them that looked like dollars. Mm-hmm. And for every kind of exposure or something that I did that was anxiety provoking, I would get brave bucks. And then once I collected a certain amount, I could turn them in and I would get toys for my hamster. And that was kind of motivating for me in some ways that not having the reward wouldn't have been. Right. I think a lot of people are afraid that they're just bribing their kids, but it's like you need some extra incentive to push yourself out of the comfort zone. If I tell you that I, or somebody who's afraid of spiders, that I want you to sit in this room with this spider you're going to be very adverse to it. But if I tell you that at the end, we're going to, I don't know, go do something that's your favorite activity, you may more easily push through the discomfort than you would if you were just going home to cook dinner afterwards. Right. It's, yeah. it's different. Yeah. And then, yeah, we've actually, I don't know, I think our latest episode that we just put out there was on medication. Mm-hmm. And Chelsea yeah. actually used a quote from you um, in that episode about the we wall. did. Um, yes. What, what was the quote? Do you, do you um, you said one of the, uh, I don't know exactly what you used, but like one it. of the things I said is like 
imagine kids who are trying to deal with these exposures, whether it's social anxiety or selective mutism, it's like you're asking them to climb over a 10-foot wall. If you put enough scaffolding underneath them and you put enough support, you might be able to push them over. But for me, at least, having that medication was like cutting it down to five feet, which made that support Mm -hmm. and that push so much more manageable. Yeah, yeah, we thought that was a great, you know, insight mm-hmm. to that for parents because that's kind of a controversial topic, medication. Yeah. I think for a lot of patients, for a lot of parents. I was put on um, medication in kind of like the middle of second grade when I was having more difficulties, less with selectomitism, but more with just social anxiety, like mm-hmm. still not wanting to participate, not wanting to give my work to the teacher, mm-hmm. just had so much anxiety about it that medication kind of helped with that. And I'm very happy that we did that. I know it was also a big decision for my parents, mm-hmm. big decision for any parents. Um, but for me, it was kind of like a turning point in my anxiety treatment, I think. Mm-hmm. And I used that medication on and off throughout my life. When I transitioned to middle school, I went back on the medication, then went off, transitioned to high school, did a similar thing, transitioned to college, did a similar thing. Yep. Currently, not on any medication, but the same as me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the same story. Yeah. Um, so I think people don't really realize that, like, so it's selective mutism is a lot more than just the speaking, and there's often the underlying anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, like it kind of lingers on even after you technically don't have it anymore. A lot of people yes. struggle with social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just wondering, like, what were the key factors you think that really improved your anxiety? Like, what were the key turning points? Um, it's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, yeah, there's something, I think it's, I don't know what the official stat is, but I think it's different in a lot of studies that between 80 and 90, some studies, even 100% of kids with selective mutism have comorbid social anxiety. I'm sure Dr. Kurtz will talk more about this next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when I, even though I had overcome my selective mutism, I still struggled with social anxiety a lot throughout my life, still up to today. It's definitely much better now than it was when I was little, but still would be very difficult to talk to, uh, be uh, making friends was difficult, raising my hand, even though if I, I could say something, just the act of doing that, uh, standing up in front of people, being on stage when um we had chorus or a band even though i wasn't didn't have to speak just standing there all different types of things and it was even when i wasn't doing exposure therapy for selective mutism i was still doing exposure therapy for social anxiety right and that's kind of what continued to help i did see dr kurtz on and off up until middle school actually um focusing on social anxiety and how to continue to challenge those types of things. And it's really, it's all, it was all practice yeah. and learning, not necessary to like it, but learning <laughs> how to not avoid it. Right. So I think in the book, you said one of the like big turning points was actually switching to a middle oh, yes. school, which is yeah. very, we had the same exact thing pretty much. Seventh I switched to a small school or... in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge difference for me. So, I don't know, what what do you think about that? Do you think that had, like, a big impact? Yes, definitely, 100%. I, 
my elementary school, I'm not sure exactly how many kids it was, maybe 350, 400. And then our middle school in my district funnels, I think it's 12 elementary schools into one middle school. So there's like 1,800 kids in the middle school. And in, in sixth grade, they kind of like section you off, so you only have to stay in like one building. Mm-hmm. But seventh to eighth grade, you're like free roam of the place. There's like, I don't know, six wings of the place. And in the middle of eighth grade, we had a lot of difficulties just even going to school. Gym class was still very difficult. Health class, giving presentations, just walking the halls when there's so many kids walking around. There's more expectations on you when you're that age. Puberty, kids being bullies, kids being mean. It was just a lot. So we had spoken to Dr. Kurtz about what to do and he recommended potentially looking into transferring schools and luckily enough there was a private school not too far from my house and it was 120 kids pre-k through 12 wow. there were only seven other kids in my eighth grade class and i ended up transferring there in january of my eighth grade year and i really I wish i would have done it sooner it was a really it was hard to transfer because I knew absolutely nobody, mm-hmm. but um, I'm really happy I did. And it just made, it's one thing to give an in-class presentation to 30 kids. It's a completely different thing to give an in-class presentation to eight kids. Mm-hmm. And you probably know them all a lot better too. Yeah. And when you go for lunch, there's 60 kids to decide who to sit with in your middle school slash high school. It's not like you need to go and wade through 800 people to find your friends or find somebody to sit with. You at least know of everybody. If you go to an after-school activity, you at least know somebody's name. You can go up to them. Um, it's different than in a, in, a, in a larger school where you can get kind of lost. Yeah. And the teachers could be much more involved and invested because they were working with so much fewer kids, right. could know more specifics about them. I wish we would have done it earlier. It was, it was really a good experience. The school actually just closed recently, which I'm oh, very no. sad about. It sounded um, like such an amazing school. Yeah, they were open for 60 years, but a lot of schools in New York State, where I'm from, a lot of private schools in New York State have closed down recently just because they can't keep up the enrollment. Um, and it's sad that other kids who had similar difficulties as me won't be able to experience that. Because not everybody thrives in, in such a big environment. They need a smaller one. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I kind of felt like, you know, for a lot of kids, they don't really find their tribe yeah. until college, till they go away to college. But when reading your book, I was so happy for you. Like, I felt like I was, you know, yeah. you know. Are you still friends with the people in your book? I, I talked to a few of them, um, but things happen. Yeah, yeah like, a yeah. lot changes. Yeah. A lot of changes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We have online now, so that makes it a little easier. Yeah. Yeah. And um, when we first transferred to school, we were worried. My parents were worried. I was maybe worried a little bit that I'd never be able to, to work in, in a large environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was looking for colleges, I kind of decided to look for schools that were at least some on the smaller side. The college I ended up going to had 2,000 kids, which is not tiny, but by the standards of some colleges with, that have 60,000 kids, it is smaller. Yeah. And I really liked the choice of school that I went to. And I think that size also did make a, a big difference for me. 
Were you able to stay home or did you live on campus? I lived on campus. It was uh, in Boston. I live in New York, so it was about a four hour drive from home. Wish we would have kept in touch from Brave Buddies. We were <laughs> I know, we're like right we're just there. North <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess I was in Canada. That's true. Chelsea's <laughs> first two years, yeah. she went to Canada and then she came back. I was going to ask you, what were your family and friends' reactions to your book? Like, did they all read it? Um, I don't know who's read it, who hasn't, but some, um, it was very, the first time I ever like told somebody about it, even like told my class that this is what I was working on. So in my school, every senior had like the last three months to work on like a senior project. The first time I ever told somebody about it and it was, it was excruciating, excruciatingly difficult because I had never spoken to anybody about my anxiety selective mutism besides my parents maybe the school psychologist maybe a teacher if they asked me about some of my accommodations that I had in school but so that was very difficult um but I did it and now I talk about it to people all the time yeah go to I've been to conferences where I'm talking about my experiences in front of a few hundred people and I have no problem with it but when I first started telling people about the book it was very difficult. Yeah, it's just very personal, I feel yes. like, and you're very honest in it. So I feel like if that was me, I'd be nervous if one of my friends was reading it. But good for you for putting your whole experience out there. Thank you. The, How did you feel I, like, oh, I'm sorry, John, go ahead. The, the motivation that I pushed myself through was that if a couple people could read this and learn something from it and help their own kids, that it would be worth the momentary discomfort from yeah. talking about it. I was just wondering how you felt during the process of writing. Like, mm -hmm. did you feel like it was cathartic? Did you, were you nervous writing it? Was it I, yeah, he was, he was a little bit nervous, nerve wracking, but I, I really enjoy the process. It's frustrating. It's rewarding all at the same time. Um, some days you'll go, plan on writing and sit there for three hours and come out with a few sentences. Mm -hmm. Some days you'll go sit there and come up with a few pages. Um, but, uh, it was, it was difficult to do. Um, a lot of stuff that I had never even let alone talk about, but even write about that from that happened when I was little. Um, but I'm happy that I did it. And, uh, yeah. Um, do you think, I'm just curious because, I see with all the similarities between your and Chelsea's stories, um, you know, I have a boy too, and I think his, I don't know, <laughs> the teenage years are different, boys and girls. And I'm just wondering, you know, being at Mighty Camp or Mighty Mouse Camp and that, do you think, um, do you think it's more challenging for boys because just girls are kind of known, it's more acceptable, I think, to be quiet and sit there quietly yeah. and behave, but do you think it's tougher on boys? That's, I think it's a very good question, very difficult question. I know anxiety disorders in general or are much more common in girls. Right. Um, I don't know what the official stat is, but it's more common in girls. Mm -hmm. um, I think, let alone just like having an anxiety disorder, but the whole introversion, extroversion thing also right. plays a similar role. There's a good um, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, which is about introverts. I have that. I haven't it's, read it yet. <laughs> it's a very good book. I definitely recommend it. Okay. Even though it's not specific to anxiety, it's about like being quiet, which 
many kids with anxiety are quiet in general, not all, but a lot are. And um, she does talk about gender and like how the original like ideal of American extroversion was like about these very powerful men who could be like the one kind of. So the whole, I'm not sure how that plays along with the anxiety. It's, I think, like with making friends, with having relationships, there's kind of more expectations on guys to initiate sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of plays a little role in guys with anxiety, but I think everybody has their own challenges. If it's easier for somebody in some retrospect, it's going to be difficult for somebody else in another. Mm. Yeah, true. I think it's good. Like we don't hear a lot from boys experiencing social anxiety and especially selective mutism. Like I know there's a lot more books out there now and, but you're kind of the only like boy voice (laughs) for that. Yeah, so that's great. great. Yeah. I think uh, guys in general don't necessarily like to talk about their feelings, yeah. whether separate from somebody having a mental health yeah, condition. It's important to share. Like, yes. So people don't feel so alone. Of yeah. course. Uh, we were curious if you've um, heard of or watched the new show. I think it's Netflix, the one Healing with the Powers of Dude. Healing I just, I just uh, saw the trailer, but I did not watch the show yet. Okay. I'm well, excited to watch it. Yeah, I only watched the first episode, but it's when cute. I saw it, I thought of you. Yeah, his first <laughs> struggle is, like, he can't even get into the middle school. Like, he's too nervous to even go through the doors. So that's, like, yeah. his first, like, goal. Yeah. yeah. It was cute. And then the second goal is, like, trying to get into homeroom. Yeah. And the whole, it takes, like, two episodes for him to do it. But Oh, wow. Really cute. It's, it's like, that sounds very similar. <laughs> yeah, you should watch it. I will. Uh, there's they do another, a great job, like, yeah. showing what anxiety feels like. Like, they do some funny, like, effects, like, visual yeah. effects that make it, like, oh, I'm melting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the good. dog's really cute. There's, I wish I could bring my cat to school. <laughs> it'd be fun. Yeah. There's there's another show on Netflix called Atypical that I really yeah, like. I love it. It's not about a kid with anxiety. It's about a kid who's autistic. Yeah. But I still see a lot of similar similarities mm. in in me and in somebody with social anxiety and huh. in the main character, Sam. Yeah. I think I it's really well show. done. I yeah. actually, I work with people with autism, so I love that show. It's a it's really well done. But the, yeah, he definitely suffers from like social anxiety. And yeah, definitely. Social issues. Yeah. Do you have any feelings of, uh, what's the word, resentment maybe um, towards teachers that pushed you out of your comfort zone? Or do you, you, you know, it's kind of tough. At the time, you don't appreciate yeah. it, sure. But looking back now, like, how do you feel about teachers and how they should treat kids with SM or anxiety? At the time, I did not like people who pushed me because it was painful. Mm-hmm. I did not like Dr. Kurtz sometimes. <laughs> now we talk a lot. Uh, I consider him a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I really disliked anybody who pushed me out of my comfort zone. But now I'm very thankful that they did it. And I think that's something for teachers to be aware of is that I I think it depends on the kid. But if somebody if they think a kid is ready for something, even if the kid might not think so, that it's important to push at times. I think it's extremely important for parents to push um, because we know that taking like a hands off approach at these kinds these kinds of things is not necessarily going to help the matter. 
um, removing, taking away things that make people anxious isn't necessarily going to help them in the long run. Mm, Yeah. And avoiding is, is not helpful. Um, I met, I met a few kids who were still suffering from selective mutism, having not really received much treatment. And they were, I met a few 17 year olds, 18 year olds, people who were 21 still suffering from selective mutism because they hadn't received treatment or the right treatment from it. So we know that these things don't get better on their own. And I think it's so important to continue working on that. And I think, I think parents should be more afraid of under treating their kids than they are with pushing them. I think they should be significantly more afraid of under treating than over treating. Right. Because the long-term effects can be really harmful. Yeah. You see it in teens who, and even adults who still suffer with selective mutism. I think that's the one thing since Chelsea and I have been doing the podcast, um, you know, there's a lot of Facebook groups on there too that we belong to. I mean, I don't know, just as a parent or whatever, but it's heartbreaking to think that there are now teenagers and adults that, that are still suffering, that still can't speak in public. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's due to, like, there's not a lot of resources where people live or yeah. they just, people haven't heard of it still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, I think, I mean, your age, you were kind of like, I think the first. Yeah, we were kind I mean, of. I don't know, I hunted high and low. It sounds like your mom, too, like, yeah. find out what was going on. and Yeah. Um, but, stuff. yeah, doctors are expensive. Finding somebody who's a specialist is, is not easy. Um there's a lot of stigma about it. Some families are very taboo about any challenges. They don't want to talk about them. You sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that are against these kids and getting better. Yeah. And I think anything that can be done to kind of push that along needs to be done. Yeah. How do you feel about homeschooling? Like, did you ever want to be homeschooled? Um, there are plenty of times that I didn't want to go to school. Yeah. Plenty of times. And this is also, I think, a very sensitive topic because I see a lot of parents on Facebook advocating for it at times. But I personally, I have no data behind this, but personally, I think it is a very bad idea for kids with selective mutism, social anxiety to be homeschooled because you can, it's impossible to replicate the amount of contact with other kids, with other adults that they would get in the classroom at home. Even if you go to so many outside activities, it's it's so difficult to replicate the amount of opportunities that they get to speak. So I think there are a lot of difficult scenarios where the only school in my area has 3,000 kids and my kid won't get in the door. There's not much we can do. I think maybe there are others, there's some difficulties in those kind of areas, but I I would refrain from those types of things. I'm not a doctor. I can't give advice. <laughs> yeah. But my personal belief, my personal belief is that I'm not a fan of homeschooling kids with anxiety because I think it's contributing to the avoidance. I agree. Yeah. What are your future goals? Like, are you going to continue volunteering? Are you going to write another book? What's it yeah. Um, I love doing presentations, doing talks with kids, teachers, adults. So... If I, you, do you ever think you would say, I love doing presentations? The irony is, is, is very noticeable. So if there's anybody out there listening who wants somebody to come talk to their school, they're 
their kids. I love doing those types of things. Um, after I graduated college, I went to go work and in a big company and it was challenging. I stayed there for a year. I also moved across the country. I moved to California. I was out there. Are you there right now? I'm not in California now. Oh, wow. It was, it was a difficult experience. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot, but I didn't think it was for me. I also had some other ideas in mind of other things I wanted to do. So I moved back home and I'm currently actually working on a new book. Oh, okay. This, Good this one is not necessarily about me. It's, it's a novel, but it's about a kid who had selective mutism when he was little, had some treatment, not very good treatment, now has pretty bad social anxiety, but he's going to go off to school. Um, and the story basically is of his first year of college, all the ups and downs that go with that and his kind of anxious behaviors and how they manifest themselves in college. Because I don't think there's enough books for kids with kids in high school. Yeah. I think separate from any mental health conditions that there needs to be more of those books, but kids in high school, kids in middle school to see what college is like. Mm-hmm. So that's one angle I'm trying to tackle. The other one, of course, is how he battles with his social anxiety in college. That's great. Great yeah. resource. It's a tough time, you know? I, uh, yeah. I have about 200 pages written, and I'm con- continuing to work. I think I'll be done with the first draft in the next month or two, and I'm going to try to revise and see if I can get it published on it. Yeah, that would be amazing. That's great. And uh, the first book I wrote, I was I was in high school. It, it's not, I'll be the first to admit it's not the most well-written book. Um, so I'm working on making this a much more polished, more clear, that's more accessible to everyday person. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, it was good. It was written from, you know, the age yeah. you were at at it the time. It was easy that to read. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's relatable. So I was just going to say, so you, you mentioned that you might be available to do uh, speaking engagements. Is yes. there a way that people can reach you if they yes. wanted to contact you? Um, on my on the website for the book, is learningtoplaythegame.com or jonathancolmeyer.com goes to the same website. Um, my email address is there. It's just learningtoplaythegame at gmail.com. You can send emails there if you want to reach out to me. Um, there's a Facebook page for the book. It's not very active at the moment, but I will definitely be posting more about future books, future plans as those things come up. Okay, and where can they buy your book? Can you, like, on the website, obviously? Is it on book, Amazon? Book is on the website. It's on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, lulu.com, um, which is the publisher. A bunch of different ways to get it. Great. Unfortunately, nowhere like in-store. It's got to be bought on. Okay. Yeah, we'll have to put the link out there when we post this. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, like, what are you thinking of career-wise? Like, do you ever see yourself working um, in the mental health field? It's an ongoing uh, debate inside my mind. Uh-huh. Um, I think you'd be good at it. Thank you. <laughs> uh, something that I thought about recently, um, I'm kind of focused on getting this book finished. And then after that, um, I'm gonna, um, it's definitely something I'm thinking about. Um, I'm not sure if I want to be like an active clinician, but other types of things in the mental health field interest me a lot. And um, they definitely need to be spoken about more. Yeah. True. Yeah, very true. 
Yeah, it's been great talking to you. I feel like we covered a lot. Yeah, yeah I think so too. I really enjoyed the book. I want to tell you, I actually cried at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it gets really emotional. <laughs> I know. It was like my heart just, just you know. I think I don't know if it was the poem or whatever at the end that was written by a friend or whatever. It yeah, was. I really love love that poem at the end. It's and then reading one that, of my favorites. I get all teared up. And it's not a sad ending if you haven't read the book yet, but it was just um, emotional. Yeah. For me to read. Um. I we both felt kind of dumb because we went through reading it and we didn't because you changed the names so we're like where's like Dr. Stephen Kurtz he's not even in this book yeah, but you just changed his name so then I feel like I have to reread it because I'm like what that was him <laughs> oh. yeah everybody's name is changed besides my family's I guess mine my brother's I think yeah yeah so we bought into the characters right so oh yeah yeah that's good <laughs> I was like this doctor is like he's really pushing you I didn't yeah. realize it was him that's so a, funny. a lot of people have said like who's this doctor I thought John went to go see Dr. Kurtz who was this person that's but so it's, funny yeah, it's yeah him. I think Chelsea called me and she's like wait a minute where's Dr. Kurtz and I said oh yeah you're right I go what happened and I was like oh my god <laughs> that we realized <laughs> we're like oh. yeah, I guess the secret's really out Okay. Um, just out of curiosity not related to SM at all but I'm wondering so you had your pilot license when you were seven oh, yes do you maintain that and do you still fly I do still fly once a month or so um I I really enjoy it it's it's great to do I started flying when I was 13 my uncle just surprised me for a flying lesson when I went to go visit him and I've kind of I was taking flying lessons for a while and you can get your pilot's license in the United States at 17. So I took the test a few months after my 17th birthday, and license never expires. So, wow, oh, that's amazing! That's an amazing accomplishment. What kind Thank of you. planes do you fly? Like, are they the little? No, they're they're very tiny planes. That's four so seats. cool, though. <laughs> they're like four seater propeller planes. Cessna 172, it's called. Cool! Wow, that's yeah. awesome. One thing yeah. I did want to say, and I don't know if we can still tack it in or whatever, mm -hmm. was because I feel like your mom and dad deserve something to be mentioned a little we bit. We should have like, invited them on. I didn't think of I it. Just, um, maybe down the road, there's an idea. <laughs> um, you know, Next I don't episode. know. Like, thank, yeah. thank goodness for your mom and dad, right? Like, yeah. 100%. I wouldn't be here today without my parents and how much they pushed with the school, how many sleepless nights they fought with the school, writing letters to them so much stuff that they had to do and i think any kid who has struggles like that it's it's what the parents have to do and there's so many people along my way who i wouldn't be here without them my the friends who i made in college made my college experience so much more doable than it would have been friends i made in high school made my experience so much more doable than it would have been without them there's a lot of people and that's one of my uh, the dedication and the acknowledgement in the front of the book is to the, all those who helped me along the way, even though sometimes I, and oftentimes they didn't see it, something like that. It's in the, yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it was, you know, good read. I loved the book and um, good to meet you. Yeah. Keep yes. us posted on your next book. Maybe we can talk about that one too. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Anything you wanted to add? No. Covered it? I think so, we covered a lot. Dr. Kurtz is, is a great speaker, so I'm sure you'll have a very fun time with him. Yeah, we're excited to talk to him. I, I love seeing anything that he does because he's really good. Yeah. Good explainer. Yeah, we're good. Thank you very much. If you have any hey, questions you. about anything, let me know. All right. Okay, thanks, John. Thanks. Good to meet you, hon.
Hi guys, it's Chelsea. I hope you enjoyed our first guest episode of the podcast. Um, I really recommend that you read Jonathan's book. And you can find that information in the show notes and on our Facebook page. We're also doing our very first giveaway. So go check out our Facebook and Instagram. And the directions to enter the giveaway to win his book are on those pages. Uh, We'll be announcing the winner February 9th. So make sure you do that for your chance to win.